2007, uh, I was in Cancun, and I dove into a wave, and I broke my fifth vertebrae down. So it basically makes it so um, I can't move anything from, like, the middle of my chest down. So you'll see me doing this a lot. This is me just shifting back and forth my chair because I don't have, like, abs or back. I just, like, would fall over if I don't grab onto things. Um, I think, like, before my accident, I would look at people in a wheelchair, and I wouldn't really know what was wrong with them. And I'd be like, man, are there, like, tubes hooked up to him? Like, is he bionic? Like, is what's going on with that chair and springs and stuff? So I've got, like, I've got a, I've got a tube that goes into my abdomen, straight into my bladder, like right through the abdomen wall. And then the tube goes down my leg and into a bag down here on my leg, the pee bag. So during uh, this whole sermon, I'll be peeing the whole time probably, <laughs> just right out of this bag. <clears throat> so that's what I'm saying. Like I might, who knows, I might fall out of my chair. I'm going to be drinking water all the time, rolling all around. But I think that for me, when uh, uh, I saw somebody at, or I was at Van Andel and there were people everywhere, I started really kind of healing from from my accident, both more physically and spiritually. I just, I've got such an amazing wife and three kids, and my life is just incredible. I wake up every day excited for what the day has and to get, you know, my work done. And I would rather be me than any of you, you know what I mean? Like, it's not like I want to be somebody else. Like, I love being me. And so I just want to throw all that out there so, like, this sermon has nothing to do with me or a disability or anything. This is, um, we're really going to just, we're going to talk about holiness. And uh, when I started praying and thinking about holiness, after my accident, continuing with the bionic theme, um, after my accident, I started taking this medicine called baclofen. And so it keeps your muscles kind of loose because your muscles, like I don't use my hamstrings, you know what I mean? My quads, I don't use them. So they'll tend to get tight. And baclofen um, does that, loosens them. Well, it's really hard on your liver. So there's this stainless steel pump that they can put like inside your abdomen. And then it has a little tube that goes into your uh, spinal column. And it just puts little bitty drips of medicine in there so that it doesn't have to go through your liver. And so you, uh, it just, it's a lot better for you. So I had that surgery. And when they were going through the spinal column, uh, it just didn't heal up. So this happens when you get a spinal tap sometimes, uh, you get an epidural. Uh, that's, fellas, that's like when they, it's when a woman's going to have a baby, they put the little thing in their spinal column to, I don't know, numb them up so they don't feel like they're going to explode. <laughs> um, and so you get this spinal fluid leak, um, and it gives you the worst headaches you can imagine. It's like white, hot. Has anyone in here ever had a spinal fluid leak headache before? A couple? Oh, I mean, it's like white, hot, horrible pain. Anyway, so I had to lay down uh, until that healed. And so it was one week, two weeks, three weeks. And I was so, I was so frustrated. I was like crying out to God, like, God, you've got me I'm already in a wheelchair. You know, like what? You just want me to be in bed, you know, the rest of my life, like what's going on? And so I would pray. And so there was uh, every, every night I would just be laying in bed all day long. I'd be laying in bed and I would just be praying, God, what do you have for me? And so there was, um, there was this, there was this one night where I was just crying out. I was like, God, daddy, 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 daddy. That's all I could say. It's all I could muster was like to say daddy. And so, um, I'm not the guy who like says, hey, I got a word from God, audible voice type guy. But of any point in my entire life, I mean, through my wife and I, we lost a daughter, through my accident, through all of it, this was the most distinct thing that I ever, like impression that I got. And just these two words like were burned in my head, like just in a moment. And it was holiness, Joshua. My first name is Joshua. Usually people call me Josh, so when someone calls you Joshua, it's a little more serious. You know, so I was like, wow, yes, God, I don't know exactly what that means. Um, but if that's what you have for me, I'm going to pursue that. 
So started kind of reading, kind of studying on it. So today is going to kind of be a little bit of the, of the outcome of that. We're going to, it's going to be a whirlwind. I'm going to slam through the Old Testament. We're going to start in 1 Peter. We're going to slam through the Old Testament. We're going to hit a bunch of different verses and then end back up uh, at Romans 8. So this is almost like, any Star Wars fans in here at all? It's like the story of the ages. It's ridiculous. It's just like, my kids know what lightsabers and Jedis are. You know what I mean? It's been going on since like 76. Anyway, they did, the, they did four, five, and six were the first movies. And then they went back and did prequels. They did one, two, three. Well, this is kind of a prequel to, um, to Rod's teaching on Romans 8. Like it leads, it leads right into, uh, into Romans 8. And hopefully after, after this morning, you'll be able to look at Romans 8 and say, wow, there's some stuff here that I just, I didn't even see before at all. So we do have Bibles back there coming around if you want. Um, so why don't we stand up, look at, uh, look at Dave if you need a Bible. So everybody stand up, grab your Bible. We're going to turn to uh, 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1. And it says, um, 1 Peter 1, verse 10 through 19, something like that. It says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. This is the Word of God. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Um, so First Peter in his letter is really just talking to a bunch of churches in general. And so as he's talking, comes to this, this point where he says, be holy because I am holy. He's quoting Leviticus 19.3. And it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. So basically, we have God's power that we desire I mean, to, to flow out of our lives. But really, what precedes God's power is His character. That who God is, you know, comes into our lives before, like, we can see, like, some of the outpouring of God's power in our lives sometimes. So when you think about holiness, we think about, okay, so what? Are we supposed to do everything perfect? Am I supposed to burn incense and pray in front of a, a crucifix six times a day? You know, what do you mean, I mean, holy? What is, what's the essence of, of holy, who I'm supposed to be? Um, you know, there are some really legitimate questions that come along with that. I mean, so you're going you're gonna to have a beer after work. So we have one beer, uh, then you have two, you're hanging out with friends. Do you have four? Do you have six? Do you have ten? You know, is there a line that like, okay, this is too many, that wasn't enough? You know, um, let's say you're wearing a, a low-cut shirt. I mean, I, I don't usually wear low-cut shirts, but, <laughs> you know, let's say that, let's say that, um, you know, ladies wearing a low-cut shirt, you know, sometimes a, a little bit of a neckline looks nice. How far down is too far? How much, I mean, it's a ridiculous question to say this out loud, but this is a legitimate thing. How much cleavage is too much cleavage? You know what I mean? Like these are things like, you know, if, you, if you're watching a movie, maybe this movie has, uh, 
has violence and maybe it has, you know, materialism in it. This is stuff that affects us. I mean, should we watch it? Where do we draw the line? What movies are too far? What are okay? You know, holiness. These are things that have, they work out in our lives in specific ways that we have to make choices that, you know, that affect that. Who, um, who do you instant message on Facebook? You know, uh, being a, a married person on Facebook, do you keep the chat on? Do you turn the chat off? When just some old friend from high school instant message you, hey, how are you doing? Do you talk to him? Do you not? Is that right or wrong? Is it sin? Is it not sin? These are things that every day of our lives that we're faced with, but we are called to be holy as God is holy. So this is kind of, this is kind of the issue, is, is in God's grace, um, it does a couple things. Okay, God's grace, I mean, covers the guilt of sin. You know, so what you have done, God's grace covers it, period, bottom line, and we don't have to live in guilt. But it's not just meant to deliver us from the guilt of sin, it's, to me- it's meant to deliver us from the power of sin as well. You know, so God's grace it has the power to forgive, but it has the power to purify as well. So we don't just stay at being forgiven of our guilt for our sin. That's not just where things end. That's not where it stays. It has to go on. It has to move on into purity, into purity for your life and into purity for my life. So looking for answers to this, let's say we just go to the New Testament. All right, so we were already reading 1 Peter. If we just went to the First Testament, you're going to miss out a lot of times on an explanation of the human condition and of God's character. So we might think, just by looking at the, at the New Testament, that it's all about getting forgiveness for ourselves. So Moses and Abraham would say no. They would say there's a lot more to that. But at the same time, if we just are looking at the Old Testament, you're, you're going to think that a lot of it is about just obedience. So we need Paul and Jesus to be saying, no, that's not all there is either. So where do we look? You know, I, I said we're going to just slam through the Old Testament, and there's a ton of verses. They're going to be up on the screen. I'm going to read through a bunch of them. But we're going to start with, with Abraham and with the covenant that God made with him. Um, but this, this covenant, why did there need to be a covenant made with Abraham and God at all between the two of them? Um, in Abraham's time, I mean, there's just death everywhere. I mean, I don't know what the life expectancy was, 45, 50, something like that. And so you're just wanting to somehow build a legacy for yourself. You want land and you want descendants. You want there to be something after you're gone that kind of says, hey, this is what I did. This is who I impacted. And so that's what Abraham wants. So God wants to give him that. But at the same time, God wants to give him fellowship. God desires to fellowship with Abraham. So because of that, he's going to enter into this covenant. So here's a little bit of history. My wife tells me to always take it easy when I start getting into history because I'll just rant and rave. So this is a little bit, this is legitimate, honey, okay? Um, so what we've got is we've got this covenant. There's these peoples called the Hittites, and they lived in what's modern-day Turkey. And just like any good empire, they kill lots of people and take lots of land. That's just kind of what they do, right? That's what, the, what's, what, that's what empires do. Well, whenever there's going to be peace made between the Hittites and someone else, um, a vassal, a you know servant, a servant peoples, they come up with this covenant, and what the covenant does, what this treaty does that they develop between whatever people they're having the treaty with and themselves, it's in this form. First, there will be a preamble, so the king will identify himself to the vassal state, to this you know, lower class, this other country. There will be a prologue, and that will relate uh, the history between the vassal and the king. It'll lay down the rules that the vassal is expected to obey. Um, It will have a copy 
that'll be placed in the vassal's shrine, whatever god they follow, it'll be placed in their shrine. And there will be a sacrifice. So there's going to be an animal sacrifice where they cut the animal in half, and they let the blood spill out, and they walk in between the halves of this animal that they've cut in half. And basically, they're calling down death on themselves. They're saying, if I don't live up to this treaty, um, it's on pain of death. You can, you can put me to death. So this form is very familiar if you start picking out parts of the covenant that God made with Abraham and later that he made with the children of Israel. Because you've got this. You've got an awesome picture of Charlton Heston. <laughs> with the Ten Commandments. I love that picture. I threw that in there just because he looks so goofy. Um, so you've got, you've got this covenant that's in the same form. Preamble, I am the Lord your God. Prologue, who brought you out of Egypt. He's saying who he is, saying what he did, and then God is laying out the rules, and he lays out the covenant, and he lays out the Ten Commandments. And then there's a, co- there's a copy placed in the ark, and in the Holy of Holies. And then if you look at, um, at the sacrifice, initially there's a sacrifice made by Abraham, um, and then there's later a sacrifice made by Moses. So that's this, this form. They really are kind of close relate, closely related. So why did God choose to do this? And there's a couple different reasons. One is when when. God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. They were just a servant class. God couldn't give them a bunch of fancy philosophy and get them to understand how God was one God. All around the children of Israel, all around the Hebrews, they saw a multitude of gods. That's what was just kind of built into their mind. So when Yahweh God wants them to learn, hey, I'm the Lord your God. There's no other God but me. I am one God. You know, so monotheism, wanting to teach that, he, he uses this covenant. He uses this form of a covenant because this vassal, this lower you know, class, pays homage to this one king that they've written this treaty with. But why is God, why is God doing this? Why is God using this form? What is going to be revealed in this form? And there's two things. And I better start hurrying. Number one, this covenant reveals God's nature. If you look through all the verses, through the whole of the Old Testament, God's covenant reveals his nature, but it also reveals humanity's nature. All right, so let's start with uh, God's nature. There's three things that the covenant is going to reveal. It's going to reveal that God's nature is gracious, that it's providing, and that it's kind. All right, so uh, A, God is gracious. All right, if you look in Genesis 6 is where we're at first. God chooses Noah before Noah does anything. Noah doesn't perform lots of religious acts and so finally said, okay, you've made yourself holy. I now love you. God just chooses Noah. But, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. So God was gracious. God, God extended his grace to Noah. All right, so then we've got God's graciousness with Abraham. God chooses Abraham before Abraham does anything. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Okay, here we go again. You've got that same form. You've got who it is. I'm the Lord. What I've done brought you out of Ur. And the Lord your God who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. And the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And skipping down some, it says, When the sun had set, and the darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants, I give this land, and then goes on to tell them what else he's going to do. Okay, so you've got this sacrifice. 
you've got God is going before Abram, who becomes Abraham. If you look at that and it talks about the smoking fire pot and the blazing torch, what does that remind you of the Old Testament? Pillar of smoke, pillar of fire. This is God. This is God's presence walking in this path, in this covenant, and taking pain of death on himself. The God creator of the universe, the creator of galaxies and space who knit you together in your mother's womb, took the pain of death on himself to make a covenant with you so that he could fellowship with you. So that things wouldn't stop with just the forgiveness aspect of grace, but it would go on and it would help to purify you through a relationship with God, through an intimate relationship with the creator of the universe. It's baffling. God is gracious. So then going on to Exodus 24, um, verse 4 through 8, God chooses Israel while there are still slaves in Egypt. And so eventually it comes down to the point where Moses makes a, makes a sacrifice. He got up early the next morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent a young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings, sacrificed young bulls as fellowship, fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood, so here he is splitting the sacrifice. He took half the blood, put it into bulls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, read it to the people. So he's reading the, the law here. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So Moses divides this sacrifice, just as Abraham had. First, it goes onto the altar. So that's kind of symbolizing God. And second, it goes on the people. So you see this covenant imagery, right? I mean, this is like all throughout the Old Testament. So God is kind. That's one thing that the covenant is revealing. Okay, so the next thing is that God provides. So I've got this really uh, cool picture of John Piper. What a handsome fellow he is. Um, and this is from his book, Desiring God. If God is loving, he must give you what is best for you. The best thing for you in all the universe is God. If he were to bless you with the best car, the best house, and withhold himself, he would hate you. If you had nothing but God, he would love you infinitely. So God is providing. What is God's, what is God's provision for us? You see, the covenant isn't the covenant is not for entering the relationship with God. Because when the covenant was made with Abraham, God had already pulled him out of where he lived before. When the covenant was made with Israel, they were already out of Egypt. They had already been saved. Salvation had already happened. Now this covenant is made so that there can be a relationship between Israel and God. So when there is a, when there is something that we need, God is going to provide it. The most important thing in all the universe is God. This is something that um, through the beginning of my accident, when Shelly and I lost our daughter, um, when we're experiencing pain, it's like, God, if you love me, you know, why do you let these bad things happen to me? The truth is, is that God is far, far more interested in you becoming like his son than he is with whether or not you're going through pain. He is more interested in you becoming like his son, Jesus Christ, than he's interested in stopping whatever the circumstances that you're in that are causing you pain. Does he care that you're going through things that are, that are hurtful? Absolutely. But he cares more about whether or not Jesus Christ is being manifest in you. The most important thing God can give you in all the universe is himself. 
And if that takes suffering, that's what he'll do. So his provision, although sometimes it looks like pain, his provision for you is himself. And that's what he's giving the children of Israel <coughs> through this covenant. Is he's giving, the, giving them himself. So the point of salvation isn't forgiveness of sins so we can live how we choose. The point is fellowship with God. This is always and will always be the end goal. Go ahead and go to this next slide. The point of salvation isn't forgiveness of sins so we can go on to live how we want. The point is fellowship with God. This has always and will always be his end goal. Okay, so through the covenant, we can see that God is kind. We can see he provides, or I'm sorry, we can see his grace. We can see that he provides. And the third thing is we can see that he's kind. All right, so look at this verse. Okay, there's, uh, there's blanks. and You guys are allowed to fill in the blanks. So blank, blank, compassionate and gracious, Blank, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sins. Okay, so this is a, uh, this is a being or a person that goes in these blanks. Do we have any quick guesses? This is God, right? So what we might tend to think is that this may be Jesus or something. This sounds like a nice guy, Right? In the Old Testament, I mean, what we tend to think is that God is just wrath, just thunderbolts and lightning and death. And the children of Israel say this about God. This is what the children of Israel say. They say, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, Rebellion and sin. You see, the reason why is because they were in a covenant with him. And they made this deal. And they said, yes, God, whatever you want, we will do. So they know that if they don't follow their end, that they deserve death. So, I mean, how long did it take for them to, uh, to mess this up? Was it a week and they're, they're dancing around a golden calf? You know, when I, was, when I was growing up, I was always like, man, those stupid Israelites, why do they just keep messing up? You know, like just over and over, they've got like God right there with them, and they still can't even do what they're supposed to do, you know? Why is that? Why is it that they just seem so powerless to do what they continually promise that they're going to do? Well, regardless of whether or not they have the power to do it, they aren't doing it, and they know they deserve death. So the fact that God doesn't just wipe them off the face of the earth, it proves that he's gracious to them because he's not giving them what they actually deserve and what they've earned, which is death. So you see the two words love up there. That's actually a word, um, hesed, which is like this idea of like loving kindness. Um, this is this is through all this is all throughout scripture, but this this is a idea that God not just loves them with this cold and distant attachment to them, but there's an intimacy, there's a loving kindness. All right, so that's three things that uh, is revealed in the covenant of God's nature: that He's gracious, He provides, and He's kind. But the covenant also reveals our nature. I just said this a minute ago, but in Exodus 24, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. It's just funny when, when they yell that, because I, mean, I don't know if you guys have, have seen this, but if you've ever seen someone that becomes a Christian, those initial weeks can just be filled with so much anticipation, excitement, and if, of course I'm going to follow God. Of course, of course, I'm going to do everything that he asked me to do. Why wouldn't I? He loves me. He saved me. And so there's an element of that that's 100% true. But months, years, decades later, it can really become a grind. It's like this is difficult. 
Christian life is hard, where initially those moments were like, of course, everything he says, I will do. And so that is what the children of Israel are doing. And they just can't, they can't do it. They can't live up to their promise. There is just something in us that is broken. There's something in us that, that can't do what the covenant says to do. That can't remain in allegiance just with one God. We have just hearts just full of prostitution, of just serving other lovers, of serving other things. And we cannot keep this covenant. This is what the children of Israel just struggled with over and over. In Isaiah 64, this isn't the whole thing, but there's just a couple phrases from it up there that may jump out at you guys. Isaiah 64, 4 through 8 says, Since ancient times no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you, who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. This is what our hearts are like. This is what the children of Israel's hearts were like. That we just can't remain loyal to one, to one God. You know, part of it is, part of it today that I see, that you guys probably see, is that we don't like the simple and the innocent and the naive. Um, I mean, take movies, you know, that we go to. It's really not cool to have a good guy, you know, wearing a white hat, a bad guy wearing a black hat, and the good guy, you know, struggles and then wins and the bad guy loses. You know, it's just too clean cut. You know, it's just too, you know, sugar plum fairies. We want it kind of dirty and kind of like, eh, the good guy has to have some flaws to him. And maybe there's not even a good guy. Maybe it's all just character development. You know, we don't like just the innocent and the pure. It's just not quite cool enough. It's just not quite intellectual enough. You know, our hearts just somehow want to drift away. There's something inside us. There's something inside us that wants to just drift away from what is just perfectly pure and upright and holy and noble. It almost comes down to the point where we would rather have bondage under an illusion of freedom than freedom within the confines of service. We would rather have things, you know, actually be a slave to the world and actually be a slave to other things and make it look like we have freedom than we would rather serve God and have real freedom in that service and in that loyalty to God. All right, so this isn't very good news. We've got a covenant to obey. We've got a God that loves us. We've got a God that is coming to us saying, you know, be in fellowship with me. And we've got a heart that just can't do it. We've got a spirit that just can't do it. You know, the covenant shows that we aren't like God, but we don't even want to be like him. I don't know about you guys, but a lot of times I pray, God, help me to want to want to be like you. You know what I mean? Like, we just sometimes don't want to. We would rather be like the world. You know, we don't have the ability to be like him, but we almost don't have the desire even to be like him. So we're in a pinch. What does God, what does God expect? So if we jump forward to, uh, this will be up on the screen, but we jump forward to Matthew 5. Um, you know, Jesus says, 
Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so here we go in the New Testament. Now Jesus is saying this. All right, this word, perfect, is tamim. And um, this has a lot. It's a, it has a big, big meanings. But some of them are in Genesis. It means uh, completed years. It means healthy animal sacrifices, nourishing vines, truthful speech, finished building projects. All those words come from that word Timmy. Completed, healthy, nourishing, truthful, finished. You know, so it's this idea of wholeness, of completeness, of being finished. And so Jesus is saying, be perfect, be complete, be whole, be truthful and nourishing. As your heavenly Father is, all of those things. You know, this means wholehearted, um, entirely, entirely committed. There's not a huge emphasis, emphasis there on perfection of action. All right, so in 1 Kings, uh, there's, another, there's another word that can be translated as perfect or as holy. And um, it's leb shalem. So you guys have heard the word shalom, you know, which means peace. It doesn't just mean like, like peace man don't have a war. I mean, that does have that element to it, but it means wholeness. It means completeness. It means everything is in place where it should be. So in, in Hebrew, you have, you know, crazy looking letters and you have little dots under them that stand for the vowels. And those weren't there originally so all you have is consonants in the Hebrew language. So the word shalom actually looks like the same word shalem. Um, so it's really, I mean, the same thing. It carries the same connotation, wholeness, completeness. And leb shalem means a whole heart. So in Kings, it's talking about some of the kings. It's talking about one that screwed up. It said, and he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as the heart of David, his father. Later on in uh, verse 14, First uh, Kings chapter 15, it says um, about Asa, that he didn't remove the high places. And these were places where they would worship other gods. It said, but the high places weren't removed. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was perfect with the Lord all his days. So hold on a second. We've got a guy that's not really perfect in action. He's not actually doing everything that he was supposed to do. But God is saying that his heart was perfect. His leb shalem. His heart was perfect with the Lord all of his days. So then if we go to 2 Chronicles chapter 25... Amaziah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Jehoiadan, and she was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not with a perfect heart. Not with you know, this wholeness of heart. So you have some guys... With bad heart, bad actions, you've got one guy who's got not necessarily perfect in action, but a whole heart. And you've got another guy who does everything right, but doesn't have this whole heart. I think the bottom line is God doesn't want obedience. He wants obedience that is the natural outflow of a heart that is totally totally surrendered to him. Obedience isn't it. It's not where it stops. And if our obedience isn't all that someone else's obedience is, or our obedience isn't all that it could be, God just wants us to have obedience out of that heart. And what he doesn't want is obedience offered 
without a whole heart. It's what he just doesn't. It's not what he desires. So what does this mean? Does it mean that like we have to just work really, really hard? You know, just wake up every day and, man, I'm just going to buck up, pull myself up by my bootstraps today, and we're just going to be holy. You know, is that what the answer is? I was in southern Indiana at a camp. This was a while ago. I was in college. It's probably like 99, something like that. And uh, I was, I was, I think, leading worship at this camp or with a music team or something. And I met this guy um, who was, he went to a, a Pilgrim Holiness Church. <coughs> he was a Pilgrim Holiness pastor. That's a denomination. And so I mean, that's, I actually grew up with a church that was closely related with the Pilgrim Holiness denomination. But this guy said, well, I haven't knowingly sinned in over 14 years. <laughs> I was like, really? I mean, I wanted to be like, well, I think you just did right there. <laughs> you know, like pride is sin if you read the Bible lately. You know, and so it just seemed to me that his heart was so fixed on how hard he had to work to be holy and to to work, 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 do everything right, and you, know, you can be holy. And that's, that's not necessarily what's revealed in, uh, in Scripture. But if you look in the Old Testament, these aren't even on the screen. I'm just going to kind of go through these quick. You've got, in Genesis, Pharaoh realizes that Joseph is a man on whom the Spirit of God rests. Um, some of the guys that are working on the tabernacle, um, Moses says that the Spirit is with them. And you've got, um, uh, you've got Samson. Uh, he grew and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir on him, or began to stir him. You've got Gideon. Um, the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon. So you've got throughout the Old Testament these people that the Spirit of the Lord is coming on. And that is empowering them. But it's not an everybody thing. Okay, so in Numbers 11, I do have this one on the screen. In Numbers 11, it says, However, two men whom na whose names were Eldad and Medad had remained in the camp. This is um, when the children of Israel are wandering in the desert. They were listed among the elders, but did not go to the tent. This is the tent of meeting. Yet the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, that's a great name, Joshua, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. You have Moses wishing that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. Then Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. In Isaiah 32, the fortress will be abandoned, the noisy, noisy city deserted, citadel and watchtower will become a wasteland forever. The delight of donkeys, a pasture for flocks, till the spirit is poured on us from high. And the desert becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field seems like a forest. The Lord's justice will dwell in the desert. His righteousness will live in the fertile field. The fruit of that righteousness will be peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. There's the Spirit again. In Ezekiel 36, verses 22 through 28, For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove you from your heart of I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people. And I will be your God. And lastly, then in Joel chapter 2, And afterwards I will pour out my Spirit on all people. 
Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions, even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. So you've got a nation that is desperately, desperately waiting for the Spirit of God to come on them, to empower them to live according to the covenant. They want to do this. They don't want to be screw-ups like we look at them. They're just like us. We want to live holy lives. We want to live how God calls us to live. But they can't do it. They don't have the Spirit. We can do it because we have the Spirit. And when in the history you know, of, of Israel does, does the Holy Spirit show up, well, we automatically say Acts 2, and that's true. But there's a little more, I think there's a little bit more to it than that. That's, that's kind of blew me away when I saw this. When you look at the inauguration of Christ's ministry on earth, it's kind of cool. In Luke 4, he, uh, he gets to read in the synagogue. So he walks up, he's going to read, um, he's going to read the verse for the day, and it just happens to be the scroll of Isaiah 61. And so in Luke 4, he's read, this is him reading the scroll of, of Isaiah, but we get to see it here in Luke 4. And Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. As the children of Israel were just breathlessly anticipating the Spirit coming to them as a nation, they knew that Messiah would bring that Spirit with him. That's what prophecy in the Old Testament was talking all about. And it's all over Isaiah. So it's so amazing to me that the first things out of Christ's mouth when he is beginning his ministry is the Spirit of the Lord is on me. If people were looking, they would see right away, this is Messiah, the Spirit of the Lord has come with him. And so if you were to ask uh, John the Baptist, you know, the difference between the Messiah and himself, he would say that I baptize with water and the Messiah will baptize with the Holy Spirit. You know, we can see this If you look at Luke 24, it says, um, this is Jesus right before the ascension. He told him, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and the repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. So he's, he's talking about the Spirit when he's talking about what his Father is going to send. In John uh, 1.33, it says, And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water, this is John the Baptist, told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So the first thing that John the Baptist is talking about when he's talking about Jesus isn't he's going to forgive sin someday on the cross. He's saying this guy is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. So the point isn't just that we are free from our sins. Is that infinitely important? Yes. But that's not where it, ha it can't stop there. It can't stop with you being free from sin. It has to go on to you having a relationship with the creator of the universe. The only way you can have a relationship with, with Yahweh, God, is through holiness. The only way we can be holy is through the Holy Spirit that came with Christ and that came on the church in Acts 2. 
Let's pray. You know, I'm gonna, I just have a couple more words to say after the, the band is playing, but I just want to pray right now kind of as a, a challenge for us and just to cry out to God, Father, we desperately long to have the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives so that we can live holy lives. And we know you promised us that. And you promised us the Spirit, and we thank you. We thank you that finally the power is amongst your people so that we can live how you call us to live. And God, holiness is such a high, high, lofty goal. God, but you call us to be holy as you are holy. And so that is our prayer this morning, is that God, holiness wouldn't be some distant, mysterious thing, but it would be imminent and it would be here and it would be now. You are the God of yesterday, of today and forever. And we just thank you. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your covenant that you've made with us. God, when you made that covenant thousands of years before Christ, when you promised your blood, your son shed his blood to cover that covenant for us. Let that sink down into the essence of who we are. In your name we pray. Amen. Just keep your heads, you keep your heads bowed for a minute. Your eyes closed. You know, Christ's sacrifice was completely necessary to cleanse, uh, to cleanse us, to cleanse the temple that the Holy Spirit would reside in. But that sacrifice that he made was not an end in itself. It was a means to a greater end. It was a means to an end that the Old Testament believers, you know, they looked forward to. And it was the hour when God would fill all his people with himself and then enable them to live out his holy life. That's the hour that we live in now. Oh God, fill us. Fill us with you. Fill us with you and let us live. Let us live that, um, that holy life. And we will give you praise. We will give you worship. We'll give you loyalty. We won't live with prostituted hearts. We'll live single-mindedly, passionately in love with you. And we will live in holiness. In your name we pray.